It's really good to be here. Um, I'm excited about what God gave me to share with you. It is very sobering. I mean, what Kenny asked me to do is, is uh, gosh, it's a little daunting uh, to talk about fruitfulness and to talk about what it means to have a life uh, that's obsessed with uh, sharing the gospel. And so today's message is going to be called Refreshing Our Discontent. Uh, and uh, we'll get into why, why it's called that. You know, the, being discontent in so many biblical contexts is like inappropriate, right? Uh, we talk about contentedness in the Lord all the time, but there's certain things in our Christian life that we should feel discontent about. And I want to talk about that in terms of evangelism today. Some of you guys remember um, uh, in 2014, the Royals made their first appearance uh, in, in the championship in 29 years, which uh, was a big deal. You guys probably remember the excitement around that and the, and the hopefulness around that. Before that, up to that point, uh, you know, I was a kid when, when uh, they won the World Series in 85. I was only three years old. And, um, but when we got into the 90s, it was just like, you know, we were always talking about Bo Jackson and, and George Brett and and Brett Saberhagen and these, these players, and I had all the baseball cards. And over time, my excitement about the Royals just faded out. Like, by the time it was, like, the 2000s, like, the Royals who? Like, I hadn't been to a game in years. And, and, uh, but in, in 2014, we could see that there was a, they were coming into a season where there was, there was, like, some hopefulness. They had a pretty decent team. And going into the All-Star break, they had won 10 straight games, which is a really big deal. Um, and so there was like some hope that, that we were going to have a winning season. Now, if you know anything about sports, uh, when you say, hey, it's, it might actually be a winning season, what that's code for is, hey, we don't suck, but we're not great. Like having a winning season is not something necessarily to be super excited about. It's just better than terrible. So that's how it was going into to, to the, to the All-Star break is that they won 10 games and the hope was, hey, we're going to have a winning season. There's, there's, some, there's a chance here that we're not going to be terrible. <clears throat> but, but after the All-Star break, uh, the team hit a serious slump and they went 9-17. and 17. And then, you know, some of the hopes were dashed, but they were like, okay, well, maybe we'll still be okay. We'll come out all right. And after a third straight loss to the Red Sox, uh, veteran Raul Abanez, I don't know if, if you remember him, uh, he play, he's played for the Royals a couple times, uh, came into the locker room to find that most of the team was playing Clash of Clans, uh, which I just realized that most of you probably don't know what that is. Um, but for millennials, that was like a really popular game uh, for, on your cell phone. And so after, you know, they had their third straight loss to the Red Sox, he comes into the locker room, he's a little bit older, and he sees all of these Royals, these young Royals athletes sitting around their lockers playing video games. And you can imagine how he felt about that. The next game, they're playing the Los Angeles, uh, the, uh, Los Angeles Angels, and they lose again, four straight games. And so at that point, he decides to go into the locker room and call a team meeting. And uh, he wants to rile them up, he wants to stir them uh, against or warn them against their apathy. And in an interview with Ibanez, he described the meeting as follows. I just gave my honest observations, said Ibanez, who joined the team only three weeks earlier after being released by the Los Angeles Angels. 
and told them about the potential and talent that they had. The talent here is so incredible. They just need to believe that. So I told them that looking in from the outside, every other team hated to play them. Everyone saw the talent that they had. This was their opportunity. They were on the cusp of greatness. I just thought they needed a belief. And that was his communication to them. And after that meeting, the team went 25-9. and nine. And they went on to play in the 2014 World Series, and obviously they lost, but the next year they won the World Series. And so here's the point. is just like the Royals playing video games in the locker room after a loss. I think it's so common for Christians to be content with good enough in our faith. Good enough. And this way of thinking gets more and more common the older we get. I turned 39 on, uh, I, I turned 39 on Friday, was it? And... Um, and the fact that I don't even remember just shows you that I'm getting older. Coming close to 40, right? And at that point, you're square into to middle age. And so <clears throat> when we get older, the thing that I realize about that is that it's so common for us to grow content in our faith, grow content in the way that we, that we serve the Lord. We find our, we find our pace. Uh, we get settled into our, our job. We get a good job. Uh, by the time you're 40, hopefully you've got like a career path. You're raising a family. You're creating a safe and secure future. And we are just like the royals sometimes, content with minor victories, but no ambition as it concerns something bigger. And as we enter into middle age, we, we have a tendency to pat ourselves on the back for ministry service, for discipling people here or there. But we tend to make excuses for our, for our apathy as it concerns evangelism. I don't know if you ever sense that, that the older you get, it's easier for the one thing that you'll excuse. You'll disciple, you'll minister, you'll be faithful to hospitality team, you'll come regularly, you'll be a part of the prayer services, you feel the, 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 the zeal of a worship service. But when you go back into your everyday life, evangelism is the one thing we often concede. Like, well, I'm doing all this other stuff, but you know, evangelism, that's just, that's a different, that's a different animal. Now, in today's message, we're going to discuss what it means to refresh our discontentment, what it means to have a holy restlessness as it, con as it concerns lost souls. We're going to ask, what does it mean to revive the fire of our witness? So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful to be with Life Fellowship today. Um, so many of these people I, I love and I've known since I was young in my faith. And uh, to be with them today is an encouragement uh, and it's humbling. Uh, Lord, there's a lot of people in the room that I don't know uh, that I have never spoken to. Uh, but Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here with them today. And, and Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. You'd set me aside. Um, I don't want to come in presumptuous. Uh, but Lord, I also want to have, I also just want to be bold bold to speak your truth and, and to, to call your people to living something more. And so, Lord, we ask for your help, and we ask for your presence, and we, and we ask for your provocation, Lord, that you would stir us up in our heart and teach us something new about ourselves, Lord, that we might live and attain to something greater, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and, and that we might bear the burden of evangelism. It's so crucial to who we are as believers, Lord. I pray you would teach us uh, how to... How to evangelize in our lives and to be concerned with souls the way that you are. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 2. If you guys are familiar with, with Acts, Acts chapter 2 is, man, it's an exciting time, isn't it? Right? Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit 
descend down on a room full of believers, 120 believers gathered together in the upper room waiting on the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is poured out for the very first time in the history of, of faith. Uh, people are filled and indwelt with the Spirit of God, and the power of God is so great that the people that were in that upper room, they poured out into the street during Pentecost, and they're out in the street. There's people from all over the, 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 the known world, people from, from Roman uh, you know, uh, regions all around coming in to celebrate the day of Pentecost, and you have these believers pouring out into the sp- street, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in languages that they'd never learned before. Pretty amazing. And as, the, as the, the chapter goes on, you see Peter is preaching the gospel, and people come to know Christ. You see a fervor and a zeal, and 3,000 souls get saved. It's a, it's a vibrant and fiery time in the early church, and there's, a, there's praying going on, they're meeting, they're singing, they're selling off their possessions, and they're sharing their, the, the wealth that they have with one another to, to take care of each other. And it's such an exciting time at the end of Acts chapter 2. Let me read to you about it real quick. In verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, it says, Then they gladly received his word and were baptized the same day. And there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common." And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, pra- uh, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So that's obviously, man, that's an amazing chapter. We always go back to that as an ideal for the church, right? We talk about it in terms of, of this is the way that we ought to have community. This is the way that we ought to live out our faith. We go back there quite often. But in the next chapter, it's really interesting to me how drastically things change between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In the next chapter, we have a complete scene shift. The excitement and the fervor have died down, and we find our characters in a moment of normal life. For a brief moment in the story, we have reprieved from the the evangelical explosion of chapter 2. And for a moment, the scene grows still, and the congregational zeal fades into the background of the story. We find two men, Peter and John, not expecting anything amazing to happen, living in a moment of solace, and taking a, a, a break from what was probably a very busy season of their life, right? You can imagine how busy Peter and John were in chapter 2. But here, it's just the two of them. In verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And what I want to point out here is that there's a bit of an experiential parallel between this story, the way that chapter 2 and chapter 3 unfold, and the way that our lives so, uh, so often unfold as we get older in our faith. Oftentimes, I think we perceive that Acts chapter 2 is like what we see in Kaya, right? And when we observe Kaya, I think a lot of times we just assume that, that the excitement and the zeal and the fire is because they're young, right? Because they have a lot of flexibility in their schedule. Because, you know, when you're young, you've got way more energy. And, and we see Acts chapter 2 as being something like, well, what the young people at MBT get to experience. You know, it it's true. I, mean, I think 
Kenny could attest to this, that, that man, I don't know if you guys see it, because we're doing baptisms in, in a service, but there are baptisms probably every other week or every third week in Kaya. Yeah, Gary, Gary knows, right? How many young people are, are coming to faith and getting baptized, and Kenny's familiar, and Jason would be familiar with how many Kaya people are in the cost of discipleship meetings, right? It's genuinely, generally something like three-quarters of the group of the, of the COD meetings are made up of people in their early 20s. And man, it is exciting. Like, the only thing that's keeping me young is the fact that I'm in Kaya, right? They keep things fresh. They keep things exciting. But you know, <clears throat> because of our observations of Kaya, and because of what I can only explain in my own life as middle-aged lethargy, we grow content with a ministry culture that says evangelism is for young people. The zeal and all the salvations and, and all of that, that's for a different season of life. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, being married with children, uh, you know, you still want to be very spiritual. Like, I don't, like, you're here because you want to be spiritual, right? You're in, you're in ministry, you have involvement, you have, you, you have aspects of your life, you've made great sacrifices to be a part of this church and to do the ministry. We all, we all have done that, right? And so I'm not, I'm not speaking of, of, you know, your love for the Lord. But what I'm saying is that this very precise thing called evangelism is the, is the main thing that tends to get neglected. And what we say to ourselves is, well, I'm much more like an Acts chapter 3 type of person. Where things have calmed down, things are still, you know, I've got a normal life that I need to live. I, I need to, I, I, there's a monotony to what I do, sure, right? But I have a pace of life. I've, I've got a job, I've got kids. Eva and I have, have three kids. They occupy our time. We've got sporting events that we go to and things that just seem like when I was young, I thought I'd never do. I'm doing, I find myself doing. But in that, we're prone to grow content evangelically and we begin to think, we begin to think that, that the fruitfulness of our youth will, will probably never come back. And I want to tell you right now that I think that that's an absolute 100% cop-out. I think that's a wrong way of thinking. And somehow along the way, we've convinced ourselves that the Great Commission applies to us differently than it does a 20-something. And that's heretical. And so key point number one is this. God expects us to evangelize no matter our age, stage, or lot in life. He expects that. The expectation for every believer, regardless of your age, regardless of your stage, or regardless of your lot in life, is that you evangelize, that you speak the truth of the gospel to every person. And from within the story, I want to point something out to you. The same great commission that was in place in the radiance and excitement of Acts chapter 2 is the same great commission in place in the routine of Acts chapter 3. Likewise, the same zeal for evangelism we see among young believers can absolutely be true in the life of someone who's middle age. As we study uh, chapter 3, we're going to quickly discover a spiritual recipe for, fruit, for fruitfulness as regards every stage of life. 
No matter where you're at, Acts chapter 3 has a recipe to be evangelical. Even when life seems monotonous or like, or like you seem like you're in a rut and you're busy with ministry, but where are the souls? Acts chapter 3 is going to unlock something for us I think is very important. You guys are so much quieter than Kaya. It's got, you guys got me so nervous. I can't even tell you how different it is. Um, so what's that? You're thinking very deeply, contemplating. Some amens from time to time as that's invited. Amen. Just pretend like you're zealous. Is what <laughs> okay, so the very first thing is that we need to be discontent with our prayer life. We need to be discontent with our prayer life. The first thing we want to take note of as we observe Peter and John on their afternoon stroll to the temple is that they're going to pray. Right? Isn't that what it says? Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Not only that, though, they're also coming from prayer. Isn't that what Acts chapter 2 said in verse 42? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Their lives were saturated with prayer. Now, here they're going to pray at the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. And the ninth hour is mentioned three distinct moments in Scripture. Three different times, the ninth hour is mentioned. I want to point this out to you briefly because I think it's of relevance to what we're about to talk about. The first time we see it is at the moment of Christ's death. Christ dies at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And in the story of Christ's death, we have the Savior of the universe transcending time and space to interject himself into the lives of mankind that he himself might be the bridge to God the Father. He sacrificed everything that we might have salvation in him. And so that story is absolutely about salvation and about hopeless people coming to God. The second example is in Acts 10. The vision that Peter received that he was going to have to go to the Gentile people and to bridge the gap between the heathen people and Jesus Christ came in a vision at the ninth hour. And so this was a moment where we saw people that were completely hopeless, that seemed that there was no hope for them to ever be able to come to God. We see a moment here where God is bridging the gap between the hopeless and himself. And now we have a story in Acts chapter 3 that happens at the ninth hour. And what we're going to see is that there's a hopeless individual, someone that seems so distant and so far from God, is going to have a gap bridged for him to the gospel. And I want to point something out to you, that there is no uh, coincidence between prayer and the hopeless coming to Christ. In each of these instances, the ninth hour is a picture of the gospel getting to those peoples for whom salvation seems hopeless. The ninth hour uh, represents grace doing the impossible so that the most unlikely and unworthy and difficult people might come to Christ. And one of the things that I've noticed as I get older is that I get more and more convinced that people my age, you know, middle, other middle-aged people, are hard-hearted, right? We often talk about, talk about it in ministry as like the concrete sets in your 20s, and by the time you're in your 30s or 40s, like your worldview has, has, gotten, has gotten solidified and, and your life becomes more narrow. And the idea of the gospel getting to older people, well, <clears throat> You know, 
It just, it's just harder. It's just harder for us older people, like our peers, the people in our neighborhood, the people in our workplace. It's just harder. I, I would like to ask for someone to show me that principle in Scripture. It's something we talk about anecdotally all the time, but I'd like for someone to show me that principle in Scripture. I don't think you'll find it. It doesn't exist. In fact, if we look at the story of Acts, the majority of people that are coming to Christ that are named and mentioned are people that are older. Right? 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-olds, people coming to Christ, coming, coming to faith, that are everybody but 15, 16, 18-year-olds. There is, there is no principle in Scripture that says that it's just going to be hard for your next-door neighbor to get saved, like harder than it is for a 25-year-old. Again, to think that way is a cop-out, and it's an injustice to the grace of God. The grace of God says that God is willing, uh, not willing that any would perish. That's true for 40-year-olds, and that's true for 20-year-olds. The, the same God that's at, wor- at work in the lives of young people is at, li- at work in the lives of older people too. And, and I want to say this to you, is that if you want to tear down what you perceive to be fortified walls to the gospel, you need to begin with prayer. And so key point two is this. God expects us to make prayers for impossible people. God expects us to make prayers for impossible people. The people in our mind that, that, that seem... Like they've, they've thrown up the walls and, you know, family members and friends and, and, and you know, siblings and, and cousins and coworkers and all, all, everybody that you come in contact with. And you say to yourself, well, you know, I've made an attempt. You know, I, I shared the gospel with them once like five years ago and they just don't, didn't seem receptive. And so, you know, they don't, they're, they're not interested. Well, have you prayed about it? Have you earnestly prayed about it? So this is a warning to us. If we really want to be, cont- uh, to con- be content and comfortable, the last thing you want to do is pray. Like if you're cool with being comfortable and middle-aged and, and you've got your life and you've got the things that you, that you do, then you go ahead and you don't pray for souls. You just keep doing what you're doing. But if you recognize that you want to be evangelical and you want fruit in your life and you want something to change, then the, the first thing that you have to do is be committed to the work of prayer. So start waking up early and praying through a list of people every day. Do you have a list? I would bet that if you're like most people, if you're like me, there's a lot of us who probably don't have our list. Or maybe we had a list, but we forgot about the list over time. Now here's the thing I want to challenge you to is that your class literally has a prayer service once a week that's just for life fellowship. And they meet on Zoom. It's super convenient. And you meet together every week to pray. And I don't know how many people are attending that. But I would bet that that time is... is it's critical for, soul, for souls, for salvation, for praying for your neighbors, praying for your family members. Right? The McHudsons are, are running that. Keith is running that. And he, he knows in his mind right now how many, he might be in that room, his, that Zoom room by himself on some Fridays. More than that. What? More than that. <laughs> At least five? 
so, so, okay, so, again, I want to point out there's nothing magical about Kaya. Let me dispel something for you, okay? There's not some sort of, like, youthful recipe about the evangelism that's taking place. Every single Tuesday after prayer, we go up into the balcony, regardless of what was prayed about during the Tuesday night prayer service, and for 15 to 20 minutes, we pray for just souls by name. And I attribute all of the fruitfulness that the ministry sees to that 15 or 20 minutes every week. Fridays at 6.30, Keith is gathering a handful of people on Zoom to do a very similar prayer meeting. And I want to challenge you to, to attend that because it's probably critical to your personal fruitfulness. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. You'll never be a winner of souls unless you're first a weeper for souls. And that's why prayer is so important. If you want to refresh your discontent, begin with prayer. If you want to be discontent as it concerns evangelism, start with prayer. Now let's look at the discontent with our perspective. That's the next thing. Discontent with our perspective. Verse 2, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Okay, let's start here just by talking about this guy's name. They refer to him as a certain man. There's no name, actual name given. He's just a certain man. Nondescript. It's a title given to someone who might be characterized by just general commonality with any other person. He's just another person in the crowd. Just another person who could, be, could easily blend into the background of our everyday lives. He or she could be, be someone in your neighborhood or in your, work, uh, your workplace. The certain man is also later called the lame man, which characterizes him by his deficiency. He's just a, another person who's frail and disillusioned and in need of a savior. You know these people, right? Someone who doesn't actually know their true need, but they're weak and they're suffering and they've got difficulty in their life. You know, they've got difficulty with their family. Again, maybe they're a neighbor, maybe they're a family member, and they're going through hardship, but they just cover it up, they gloss it over, and they're just trying to move along. A person who's suffering just beneath the surface. We read here that the certain man, he was carried, right? He was carried daily outside of the gates of the temple to be, to, to be sat there so that he could beg for alms. He was a person who couldn't make his own way. He couldn't just get up and walk and go where he wanted. The certain man of our lives are people who are relying on survival techniques to find a bit of happiness. Running the rat race, finding their niche, carving out a piece of the American pie, a person who's predisposed to just letting life happen to them, content to make the best of it. You know these people. These people are high school friends. These people are people that you went to college with. This is your manager at work. The certain man also surrounds himself with other certain men. It says that this man had friends who laid him at the gate of the temple. And they're part of this story because they're part of his routine. They're accomplices. They're, they're, they're a part of the, of the pattern of his, his lostness. A certain man will surround himself with those who are also dis, uh, uh, delusional in their thinking. These are like your parents. These are like, these are like people in the, your fraternity in college. These are like the people that you bump into at the grocery store regularly. 
And my point to you is this, is that we have certain men and women in our lives that we don't think about. They're just fixtures in our lives, but they're hurting, they're common, they're normal. They think their lives are normal. They're just carving out a piece of the American pie. They're just trying to make it happen. They just want to make sure that they have a good 401k. They want to have a comfortable life. They want their kids to go to college. They want life to just be normal, and they want to move along. They want to watch the sports game on a Thursday night. They want to go down to the lake on the weekends, on Labor Day. They want to drink a little bit. They want to sit out on their patio, or they want to sit out on their driveway and have the neighbors come over for a drink from time to time. These are normal people. These are people that come into your cubicle at work and they talk to you and make sh- like sh- small talk with you and you just don't think about them. You don't think about their souls. Oh yeah, that's just Joe or that's just Susie or that's just so-and-so. That's just that guy down the block. I know him kind of. We've been living next to each other for about 10 years, but you know, we've never really had a conversation. Not a deep one anyway. I've seen him at the neighborhood gatherings or blah, blah, blah. He's outside working on his lawn a lot, but he doesn't seem like he really wants to talk very much. So eh. See, our lives are filled with certain men who are weak and fragile and hurting and just beneath the surface, they're crying out for a savior, but because we're middle-aged and lethargic and not thinking about it and we're apathetic and we're doing all the same things that they're doing, maybe we're a little more spiritual than them, we often neglect to think about them. We're not thinking about their souls. We come in contact with people constantly We come in contact with people constantly, but we don't always see them. At least not the way that God wants us to see them. And that leads us to key point number three. God expects us to value the souls of those we commonly commonly dismiss. Who are the people that you commonly dismiss? They're just certain people you know. They're just around. Like, I, you know, I know them. I see them taking their dog for a walk outside my house. You know, we all have these people. These people are are our calling. These people are the ones that we go to. We've gotten so complacent that we just dismiss them and God is crying out, do you see their soul? Luke chapter 19 verse 2 says, and behold, there there was a man named Zacchaeus which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. There's so many people, he couldn't couldn't see Christ because he was of little stature. Just a a certain man. Just Just a normal guy, a little short, you know? A little short guy, walking around, doing his thing. Kind of rich. People didn't like him much. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was to pass that way. Jesus is concerned with certain people. People that other people have forgotten. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Jesus saw people that we would forget. 
And his testimony brings shame to my own life. See, this certain man in our story in Acts chapter 3, this certain man, to everyone else in that community, he was just another person. But to Peter, Peter saw a single shining glimmer in a sea of people, and it provoked him to engage. And if you want to refresh your discontent, it's time to acknowledge how precious the lost are to God. Next, let's look at the discontent with our passivity. Discontent with our passivity. Verse 3, it says, Who's seeing the certain man, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. In other words, he was begging. He wanted some money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. So our story here with Peter begins with him fastening his eyes. And the word fastening here means to fix your eyes, to focus your attention, the attention of your mind by looking at the object of your intent. So you can imagine Peter stopping everything. He hears this man speaking and calling out to him. And he turns his attention, instead of ignoring him, which would have been a very easy thing to do, he turns his attention and he locks eyes with this man and he says, look on us. In the midst of the day-to-day crowd of Jerusalem, it comes as no surprise that someone who routinely begs on the street would be ignored. He was just a common fixture in the landscape of the city. But that was not good enough for Peter. Peter fastened his eyes. He chose to be present. He chose to consider the souls of the lost. He chose not to ignore. Peter knew that to engage... In order to engage the needs of the people and to engage this lost man, and in order to, to, to reap fruit for the harvest, he had to stop what he was doing, to stop being passive as it concerns other people. He had to stop what he was doing and engage and, and choose with intention to meet this man. Key point number four. God expects us to be intentional with the unsaved, and we're not. We're not. We're not intentional. We don't have a plan. We don't have a purpose. We don't have a strategy. When we walk through our neighborhood, we're not thinking about opportunities, to how, how we, we might go and meet other people. When we're at our workplace, you know the thing that we often think to ourselves is, and this is incredible, guys. We, we, we make so many excuses as we get older. It's, it's, it's insane. A lot of us, have, has anybody worked here at the same place for more than five years? Same job for more than five years. Okay, so that's like at least half the room. And in your workplace, you often tell yourself, well, I've witnessed everybody here. I guess I'm done. I, I mean, I've made it, I took a crack at it, Lord. Did you know that when he asked you to be a fisher of men, that he was asking, asking you to be intentional and make evangelism your occupation? That it would be your vocation? What fisherman looks around at, at, at the, the pond and says, well, I guess I can't catch any fish. I, you know, I've tried fishing here for quite some time, and it, well, 
And then he just stays there? Completely content to just hang out there? That guy doesn't eat. That guy's catching no fish. That guy is not eating. What does, a, what does a good fisherman do? They go fish somewhere else. It's, it's not right for us to look around at the landscape of our lives and say, well, I've, I've saturated this place with the gospel, but I've got, you know, I've got another 20 years before retirement, so I better settle in. <laughs> and somehow, being stuck at that job is equal to, I guess I don't have to evangelize anymore. I guess I've done, I've done my job. And instead of looking around and saying, okay, well, I have to have this job. I have to pay, uh, provide for my family. But where can I go where the fish are biting? This is what I mean in terms of engagement. God expects us to be intentional with the unsaved. Mark 6.33, And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. This is the 5,000. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And here's the point. When we look out on the landscape of our lives, do we see sheep without a shepherd? Does it grieve us? Does it make us compassionate towards them? To Jesus, it caused him to teach. What does it do for you? Well, I'm busy. I got soccer practice tonight. Peter said, look on us. This was an invitation to engage in a real and meaningful conversation about who Jesus Christ was. Our passive conversations about where we go to church at the grocery store is that's not witnessing. Hey, yeah, I go to church. I go to Midtown Baptist Temple. It's a great church. You should think about coming sometime. Good talking to you. And then going about our life, you didn't witness to that person. You've li you're lying to yourself. Conversations like that, that's not, that's not a gospel presentation. That's a, that's a, once again, that's a cop-out. You haven't done something awesome for the Lord. You don't get to go home to your wife and say, hey, I had a gospel conversation today. I witnessed to my coworker. Yeah, I talked about church. This is what we do, y'all. I mean, this is, this is what I, I catch myself doing. That is not intentional engagement. If you want to refresh your discontent, reconsider the common people in your life and begin seeing them from the vantage point of the divine. See their soul with the compassion of God. Next, we need to be discontent with our priorities. How much more time do I have here? <laughs> yeah, that next class, forget them. They can stand outside. It's nice out. The next thing is we need to be discontent with our priorities. And he gave heed unto them. That's the certain man did. He gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. He wanted, the, he wanted alms. He wanted a handout. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Okay, do you know what's happening here? The man wants some money. That's what he does. That's what he does every day. He wants to go about his life uninterrupted. He has a comfortable routine. He asks people for money every day. And then he uses that money to feed himself. It's what he does. It's the way all people function, regardless of whether you're lame physically or you're lame in spirit. This is what people do. This is what certain men do. 
they're beggarly. They eke out a living, they, they get a house with a white picket fence, they have what they need, and they're content with that. That's what they do. So when this man asks Peter for a contribution, Peter turns out his pockets and says, I don't have anything like that for you. He makes it clear that he had no money to offer, and even if he did, what good would it have been to his soul? What good is the meeting of temporal needs when spiritual needs go unattended? Jesus makes this point several times in the Gospels. In John chapter 4, Jesus is witnessing to the woman at the well, and as she goes to her friends, remember, she leaves and goes back into the city of Samaria to go get her friends and bring them out to Jesus. The disciples show up. You remember that? They, they show up and they're like, hey, Jesus, you hungry, man? Because uh, we, we're hungry. We're ready to eat lunch. They say, master, eat. And he refuses. He refuses the meal. Why? Because his anticipation is for a spiritual lunch. He was about to receive uh, many Samaritans that day. They were going to come out of the city and come to him, and he was going to share with them the truth. That was his spiritual meat. You understand? So, so Christ's point is, more important than material things, more important than physical hunger, are spiritual things. Now, that's not just important for the certain man to know. That's not important for just the lost person to know. That's important for us to know. Because the problem with being middle-aged is that we forget that spiritual things are more important than temporal things. We forget that. We don't even know that we're doing it. Again, we're content with being at church and, and discipling from time to time and and, and, and being a part of the Tuesday night prayer or, or serving in Kidtown, we grow content with that. And all the while, the majority of our fervor and our excitement and our attention is on getting a raise and buying a new car and having a good 401k and blah, 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 blah. And the truth is we're as materialistic as many lost people are. Because we're prioritizing the wrong things. This is an incredible statement that Peter's making to him. And it's not just for this man, it's for himself. He's reiterating the truth that he knows. I don't have any money. That's not what's important. What I have to give you is greater than any, any physical gift I could ever bestow upon you. I wonder if the, the reason that many of us aren't engaged in evangelism is because our material goals prohibit us from, from evangelizing. Maybe many of us work 50, 60 hours a week at our job. It sucks up all your extra time. You wouldn't have time to go meet your neighbors even if you wanted to. That's convenient for you. That's convenient for you and your family. But what about that guy down the street that's going to hell? You know, Chris Best just stepped away, I mean, from a better job than, like, financially than I'll ever have. I mean, being a doctor pays pretty good from what I've heard. And Chris Best just stepped away from that job. Now, why would anyone ever do that? Why would anyone make a decision like that? And I want to point out real quick is that Chris Best, Best is stepping away from this job, but in the last month, I know of three people that he's personally led to Christ. Why is Chris Best that way? Why is he that way? 
Because he, unlike us, prioritizes spiritual things over physical things. Key point number five. God expects us to prioritize the eternal over the temporal. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.13 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. There's a day coming that's going to declare the value of your real life. Because it shall be revealed by fire, a trying fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. I don't know if, I mean, you guys, you might share that in discipleship, and it's like this really great and important point that you make in discipleship about like, hey, you got to invest in eternal things and blah, blah, blah. But then, then you refuse to ask yourself the hard questions about your job, where you live, what you spend your time doing, the things that you prioritize. Don't just teach that stuff. To teach it and to not live it, that makes that trying fire a little bit hotter for you. Like you, th- you think that goes unseen? They call that hypocrisy. I mean, Christ calls that hypocrisy. He sees it, and it will be tried. It will be found out what you have valued. So don't go around being altruistic about spiritual things and then fail to actually live it out in your life. What are you sacrificing for souls? That's the real question. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his, for his soul? This is reminding us that a single soul is more valuable than every possession that could be gained in this world. Every single thing, every castle, architectural wonder, every palace, every bit of gold, every bit of pleasure. One single soul has more value. We don't live that way. We don't live that way. Next, we need to be discontent with our presumptions. Discontent with our presumptions. This is a big one. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. And he says this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This was an, I mean, from my perspective, this was a pretty audacious move. Right? Like you just go right into it like that. (laughs) Like get up and walk, man. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. You're not... I know you've been lame since, since birth, but let me just presume for a moment that in this very moment, you're going to be able to stand up and walk. That's a unique kind of faith. Peter had no personal power to see this man healed. All he had was the faith, a faith filled with presumptions that his God could do the impossible. Peter chose to foolishly invoke the name of the one who could save. And he anticipated that God would move. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that leads us to key point number six. God expects us to presume that he can. Again, you know, one, of the, one of the plagues of being middle-aged is that so oftentimes we're what we like to refer to as realists which for a lot of you is code for pessimist. Well, you know, I just, I like to see things realistically. 
When the Bible so clearly says that what God wants is for his people to be foolish. What is it, something like charity believeth all things or something like that? Like hopeth all things? But we live lives that are so critical of everything around us. You know, we've lived a little life, we've grown a little jaded, we've seen a few things, and over time, we wouldn't admit it, we come to a place where we don't actually believe that God can do the impossible. We we use our rationale. We see people, we see situations, we see that they're kind of cornered into a lifestyle or a worldview, and we say to ourselves, well, too bad for that guy. Won't see him in heaven. I mean, like, in terms of just, just, let's be honest, let's be raw about it. That's what we're, th- we're not thinking overtly that way, but that's, that's what's going on in the back of our mind. Many of us live Christian lives that look like going to and fro to the temple to pray, but very few of us live full of faith in the streets and in our neighborhoods. I mean, we leave the prayer meeting, we're like, full of faith. I'm, I'm just... I'm so full. I'm so excited for what the Lord's doing. Oh, so good. And the next day at your workplace, you have absolutely no faith to spend. You don't presume that God's going to do anything. If you refuse to presume upon God by speaking up and and sharing the gospel, you may escape rejection. Like if you don't go around presuming that God's going to save people, and you don't speak out, that's fine. You're going to save yourself rejection, but you're going to also lose the opportunity to see God at work. Verse 7 says, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered, in, uh, entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man, which was healed, uh, healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So here's the deal. If, if Peter and John, if Peter and John used the experience of Acts chapter 2 to determine their expectations for how they were going to invest in Acts chapter 3. In other words, if they told themselves that if it doesn't look like Acts chapter 2, God's not really in it. You know, if if it's not that exciting and if it's not 3,000 people getting saved and if it doesn't look like Kaya, if it doesn't look like, you know, it's... We just ought to lower our expectations a little bit. See, Peter and John, they didn't do that. They refused to do that. But if they would allow Acts chapter 2 to inform Acts chapter 3, they would have walked right by this guy and lived just the way that you and I do. And there would have been no healing. There would have been no salvation. There would have been no marveling. There would have been no people running to see what God had done. If we look at our ministry at MBT and think that, it, that it's the young people who do the evangelizing, then we've actually failed to know God. 
and who he is. It's not an issue of whether or not it's possible for your coworkers or friends or family members to get saved. That's not even in question. We know scripturally that, that there is a possibility that God has brought us hope, that God wants to save all people, that his spirit isn't poured out particularly on young people versus middle-aged people. The truth is it's a matter of whether or not you're going to do what God asked you to do. That's the only thing in question. It's not whether or not God wants to move in your family or friends. The question is whether or not you've got the guts and the faith to go out there and live out the Great Commission the way that it was intended to be lived out. Oh, well, I disciple. Oh, I do ministry. I've got, I'm, I do spiritual things. See, listen to me. A partial Great Commission is no Great Commission at all. Don't lie to yourself. And I'm, talk, I'm talking to me. I feel the complacency at every turn. I sense it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says this, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. 37, Then, he, then said he unto his disciples, Listen, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his field. The question isn't whether or not there's, there's a harvest to reap. There is. The people in your neighborhood and the people in your workplace, they want to know Christ too. They're hurting. They're desirous. And the Holy Spirit can make them just as malleable as any other person. God can make a way for anyone. But what he needs is laborers. That's what he's asking for. And there is no age requirement or exemption here. There's no, there's no parenthetical clause in the middle of this that says, oh, except for if you're 45 or more or have three kids. Or if you've been in that workplace for a really long time and you've already witnessed everybody. You're exempt. Never mind. We don't need you to labor. You've done a good job. Now just take a place on the bench and help out, you know, help out in the, back, back in the behind the scenes. We can't, we can't afford to live that way. You want to see God at work in your life? I do. We've got to be discontent with the way things are. 